1: We tend not to think about the objects we encounter each day and where they came from. We've always used short plastic sticks with nylon bristles to brush our teeth, or washed our hands in porcelain basins, or enjoyed our morning cup of coffee in a ceramic mug. But who were the first people to brush their teeth that way, or wash their hands in a sink, or use a mug to hold hot beverages? For the most part, we don't think about those things because we don't really care, as long as they work the way that they're supposed to. But one man cared, and he let everyone know it. Henry was upset. On December 28th of 1917, he penned an article in the New York Evening Mail about an anniversary that seemed to have slipped by without any attention paid. There was no fanfare or fireworks, not even a short write-up in the local papers. What had everyone forgotten? The bathtub. December 20th of that year marked the 75th anniversary of the bathtub's introduction to the United States. A party had been in the works months earlier when a surgeon stumbled upon the date while researching the origins of public hygiene. Unfortunately, the event was going to be held in Washington, D.C., which had recently banned alcohol. As a result, the party was canceled. Henry dove deep into the history of the bathtub in America, which had gotten its start in Cincinnati in 1842. A salesman named Adam Thompson used to travel to England on business and had gotten accustomed to visiting the baths there. Though the bathtub had been introduced years earlier, it was an uncommon practice, even there. Early bathtubs were much smaller than they are today, not large enough to accommodate a full sized person. The act of bathing actually required the tub to be emptied and refilled by a servant until the process was complete. Thompson, however, saw a way to make it much easier. His version was enlarged so that he could sit inside it, and instead of having someone fetch water from another location and bring it to him, he hooked up pipes that filled the tub from the well in his garden. Six men would pump the water into a tank in the attic of his house. Pipes from the tank would then carry the water to the tub below. One line brought cold water straight from the tank, while another coiled around the chimney, which then heated it on the way down. The tub itself didn't look much like today's modern bathing vessels. Rather than being made out of cast iron or acrylic like more modern tubs, Thompson's was hand-built out of Nicaraguan mahogany, and it was massive, seven feet long by four feet wide, and it was lined with lead so that the water wouldn't leak out. It was so heavy that they had to have extra beams installed in the floor beneath it to support its weight. Thompson's tub soon became a main topic of conversation when company came to visit. He demonstrated it to friends on Christmas Day, and even invited them to take a dip if they liked After that, news of the bathtub spread across Cincinnati. While the wealthy elites embraced it, several medical professionals came out against it, warning that frequent baths would cause fever and respiratory issues. News of the tub made it as far east as Pennsylvania. The Philadelphia Common Council went so far as to try to ban all bathing between the months of November and March, but couldn't get the motion to pass. Cities in Delaware couldn't keep the tubs from being installed either, but water rates skyrocketed for those who owned them. Eventually, cheaper materials and construction made the bathtub a common sight in homes everywhere. All the medical debates and political outrage started to die down when it was clear that there was no way of stopping them. Vice President Miller Fillmore even visited the late Adam Thompson's home in 1850 and bathed in his original mahogany tub. Later, when he became president, he ordered one to be installed in the White House. The trend took off from there, and bathtubs became a mainstay in homes, hotels, prisons, and other dwellings across the United States. Henry's article was reprinted in newspapers all over the country. Members of Congress cited it in legislation. Encyclopedias included it in their entries on the bathtub. Clearly, the article was a viral hit. And then, eight years later, Henry followed it up with a new piece— One he titled, Melancholy Reflections. Rather than expand on his history of the bathtub, the author penned something else entirely. A confession. His original article, well, it had been a hoax. Any truth it might have held was done by accident. Despite his admission, Henry L. Mencken's piece is still quoted as fact today in published articles and essays. It seems that it's a stain, that no amount of washing—
0: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty.
1: No matter how hard we try, sometimes we can't help but find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. The security guard who was supposed to be watching the IGR learned that the hard way, although not as hard as some others. The IGR was a radiotherapy clinic at a hospital in Brazil. In 1985, the hospital closed and the clinic moved to a new location. Technicians left some old equipment behind, including a teletherapy machine used for radiation therapy and a legal fight broke out between IGR and the group that owned the old location, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. For months, they battled over the contents that remained inside the building. And while both parties worked to sort things out, the court appointed a security guard to watch over the location to prevent items from being stolen. Two years later, on September 13th of 1987, the security guard didn't show up for work. In his absence, two scavengers looking for scrap to sell slipped inside the abandoned hospital. As luck would have it, Roberto and his partner Wagner stumbled upon the old teletherapy machine. Believing that they hit the big time, they started taking it apart and loading pieces into a cart. That night, they noticed something was wrong. They were very sick, vomiting frequently as they broke their haul down even further. Their symptoms grew worse the following day. They dealt with diarrhea and dizziness, and Wagner himself suffered a burn on his hand that caused it to swell. It got so bad that he ended up losing several fingers. While he recovered, Roberto kept at it, finally breaking through to the core of the device. He jammed a screwdriver into the capsule to pry it open and saw a blue glow coming from inside. Unable to get the strange substance to react to fire or other materials, he decided to sell the lot to a local scrapyard, owned by a man named Ver Alves Ferreira. Ferreira was captivated by the blue light. Believing that he was in possession of something valuable, possibly even holy, he brought it inside his home and invited friends to come and see it. He sold the rest of the salvaged metal to a rival scrapyard. One visitor managed to pull a few rice-sized grains of the substance from the capsule, which were then passed out as tokens of good luck. Ferreira's brother Ivo took one home to show his wife and six-year-old daughter. The little girl was eating lunch when her father placed the material on their concrete floor. She picked it up and smeared it on her face like makeup. Some of it even made it into her sandwich. Everyone who had come in contact with Ferreira and the glowing blue grains started to get sick. Ivo's wife was the first to show symptoms. She quickly realized that their illnesses hadn't started until the blue stuff inside had entered their lives. She got the scrap metal back from the other yard and brought everything to a local hospital. Dr. Paolo Roberto recognized her symptoms as well. Roberto, Wagner, and the Ferreira family had all been exposed to cesium chloride, the radioactive fuel that made the teletherapy machine work. Within hours, the authorities were at work on containment, while the media alerted the public to the situation. Hospitals were immediately overrun with panic-stricken people believing that they had been contaminated. Out of almost 130,000 patients, 250 showed signs of exposure. Of those, 20 required treatment for radiation sickness. Sadly, though many survived the ordeal, several did not. Two of Ferreira's employees at the scrapyard suffered from organ damage due to their handling of the radioactive material and died just weeks after exposure. Ferreira's wife also passed away from exposure to the substance. In fact, she died on the same day as her niece, the young girl who thought the blue substance was makeup. And all of this tragedy could have been avoided if the state-hired security guard had been at his post. For whatever reason, he happened to be in the wrong place at the very wrong time. Rather than protecting radioactive materials from falling into the wrong hands, the guard had taken his family to a screening of Herbie Goes Bananas, a poorly received entry in the Herbie the Lovebug film series. Thanks to the guard, Herbie Goes Bananas went from a box office bomb to a bomb of a very different kind. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities.